to the podcast of Imago Day Community, where we're convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. Well, good morning, Imago. Um, for those of you who are visiting, uh, my name is Bill. Well, actually, my name is Bill, whether you've been here or not. So, uh, but I'd like to welcome you here if you are a, a visitor. Uh, today, uh, if you haven't kind of uh, guessed, we're going to look at the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, Ecclesiastes is a book that if you're not prepared, it blindsides you with meaningless or nothing. So some of you heard that song and went, wow, that song feels a little depressing. Well, that song is very biblical. Uh, that song talks about the idea that somehow if we were to try and get our meaning for life from life, we could end up with nothing. And there's a warning in Scripture about kind of landing there. It's, it's, um, it's a picture when, when we're looking at the story of God and we're actually in a chapter called Wisdom uh, where we look at some of the wisdom literature of the people of Israel it includes Job, and it includes Proverbs, includes Ecclesiastes that we're looking at today. Let me just read a couple of verses out of Ecclesiastes. Uh, verse 17 of chapter 2 says, So I hated life, because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. In fact, that word meaningless is going to occur uh, 37 times within the book of Ecclesiastes, which is only 12 chapters. Going on in chapter 2, the author says, And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sea. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all the toilsome labor under the sun. And in chapter 4, he says, Again, I looked and saw all the oppression that was taking place under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they had no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressor, and they had no comforter. And I declared that the dead who who have already died are happier than the living, who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet or who has not even seen the evil by being born under the sun. So it isn't just like it's bad. It's, it's worse than you thought. It's like um, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying, here's a terrible existence, being alive. You want to trade up? Die. Because at least if you die, you don't feel pain anymore. And then he goes, but here's probably the best one. Never exist. Because then it isn't a matter of stopping the pain. It's you never experienced the pain. And numbness kind of becomes a goal. In fact, numbness becomes a commodity that is acquired regularly in our culture. We're often on a pursuit of numbness, a distraction, an entertainment, some way of being able to simply in a sense, have a death experience from the life that feels meaningless. And so as we kind of look today at this idea, I want to suggest that that maybe what the um, author is trying to get us to is we don't have to live exactly like that. He's not going to invite us to some kind of triumphalism that says you don't have to live in pain. 
But he is going to say avoidance of pain is meaningless and pain is meaningless. But he gives us a clue as to what makes it meaningless because he uses a phrase repeatedly under the sun. And maybe you've expressed that same kind of expression to someone else when they say, how are you doing? And you go, well, under the circumstances, okay. And we're not supposed to live under those circumstances, and we're not supposed to get our perspective from life from under the sun. He's actually giving us a cue that there's an above the sun or above this world perspective that even in the middle of meaninglessness can provide us some kind of of life. So it's unusually warm today and this week in Portland. Uh, Neighbors all around me have decided that it's time to go to the beach. Okay, uh, maybe some of you are going, I didn't think about that. I'm out of here. And you're on your way to Cannon Beach or Seaside or your favorite Oregon Coast spot. But here's the weird thing. If you get down there today or down there this week and it's warm, you're going to get thirsty. And you have the biggest body of water available to you right in front of you, pounding against the shore. And it's meaningless to quench your thirst. But it's not meaningless to enjoy. There's a way to enjoy this meaningless uh, thirst quencher if we use it for something other than quenching thirst. And that's what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying, is all that we have around us under the sun, if we use it to give ourselves meaning, it's meaningless. But there actually is a way to live life that gives a legitimacy to simply enjoying it. Like if you were already had your thirst quenched, there's a great ocean to enjoy. Swimming, letting it lap against you, watching the kids play in it. If you have a dog, uh, watching him enjoy it. Uh, if you like seafood, all that can be had out of, out of the ocean. I mean, the ocean is a great thing, but it's a lousy thirst quencher. And we have sometimes used the world's environment that all of us live in as a thirst quencher for life, rather than getting our thirst quenched somewhere else and enjoying the world we actually live in for what it was intended to be. So I'm going to take a little bit different spin on Ecclesiastes, rather than somebody who just gets boxed in the corner saying, I choose death, or I would trade up to non-existence. It's for him to say, There's, that is legitimate if there isn't anything more than what's under the sun. But he boxes us into a corner so that we're desperate to say, is there anything else? And his answer is yes. So that's a little bit of how I'd like to look at Ecclesiastes today. I'm going to read kind of a a long um, chapter here. Um, It's assumed that that Solomon is probably the author. There are people that will debate it, but he says, I'm a, as a son of David, I ruled as a king. I surpassed most of the kings, acquired wealth so that kings from all over the world came to, to uh, see my empire, hear my wisdom, which in a lot of ways is the um, picture we have of Solomon. So just kind of reading through his pursuit under the sun in chapter two, I'm gonna start at verse one. I'm gonna read the first 11 verses. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasures to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine 
and embracing folly, my mind still being guided with wisdom, I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I, brought, I bought male and female slaves, had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. And so Solomon rehearses uh, the usual suspects as far as things that he thought would either bring him fulfillment or at least numb the pain. He talks about pleasure, laughter, and wine, somehow thinking if I could just simply entertain myself, maybe I would be distracted. He talks about great works that he accomplished, from building houses to cultivating vineyards and gardens to developing parks and orchards, developing pools and and having a forest that he could enjoy. Power, he talks about slaves that recognized him as, as master as well as other nations that recognized him as superior. When he talks about riches, he talks about gold and land and treasures that surpass others. And when he talks about sex, he said, hey, I have had a harem. And other places where it mentions his harem, that if he took his wives and his concubines, uh, he basically could have three different women a day for a year before he'd come back to the first part of his inventory. I mean, he's a man who indulged himself with, without limitation. And, and none of us are going to match him in any way. And he's saying, when I did what I did, I found that it was meaningless. When I did what I did, I found that that it didn't satisfy my thirst. That I was surrounded by an ocean of availability and nothing availed itself to meaning or satisfaction. And I craved more and I felt empty. So it kind of puts us at this question, so why would we do anything? What makes something meaningful? I walked my dog through a park this morning, and there were all kinds of uh, bags of trash around the the trash cans. They were just full from all the picnics yesterday. And the guy who was collecting the trash was there throwing them into his pickup. And uh, I've seen that guy often because I walk my dog when he's picking up trash. And there's a couple of them that actually pick up trash, and one of them is angry all the time. Like, I can't believe all these people, you can't even throw stuff, you know, away, you know. And the other guy is whistling all the time. Like, hey, I'm just going to have fun and make the best of this. This is my job. 
And they're doing exactly the same thing. And it's not meaningless that he does exactly the same thing and picks up the garbage. Because I'm kind of grateful that he does. You know, I don't even think I could walk through the park if he never picked it up. And so the idea that something, if I do this, it's just going to happen again. If I do this, no one even notices. If I, there are a lot of reasons why we would never, and we can fill in our own meaningless narrative. And that can demotivate us from even living life. And so the best we could hope for is numb. So I want to invite someone up who can uh, give us a story of how um, it's not just a typical victory story. How I was in a mess, I accepted Jesus, and now I have three kids in a Subaru. (laughs) But it's basically a story of how... um, Uh, we bring our lives to God. So Craig, why don't you come on up? Does your heart beat this hard every time you do this? I'm thinking I need a treadmill to stand on to burn off all this energy. uh... Thank you, Bill. Um, Wow, I was just sitting here thinking about that song that he sang because I've got to hear it twice so far this morning. And... uh... That was kind of my story. Um, After I left Christ the first time, um, you know, I did the whole high school, um, seek Christ, find meaning, and then decide that 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 wasn't what I was looking for. And and then I found uh, meaning in a bottle. And uh, that's not the song by Sting or the police. It's it's more of a kind of a pursuit of my own happiness. And and I didn't actually... foresee that being uh, the meaning in my life um, until the, till the day came um, that it stopped. But I, I will tell you that, um, that my internal self or, or how I felt every day that I was at the bar, and yeah, it's a shocker, I was at the bar every, every day, um, local one here, Moon Sixpence, some of you might remember me. From, uh, uh, I was a bald guy with crutches. I don't actually know if I was bald then, but I... Uh, um, you know, I, I kept trying every day. So I, I would sit there with my pack of Camel Lights and my uh, Paps Blue Ribbon. Yeah, I know, cheap stuff. You'd have the good one first and then follow up with the inexpensive. Um, but I'd sit there with my spiritual books. Um, I think one was the path to a meaningful life. And, um, and I'd sit there at the bar and read and try to find meaning in my life. And, um, you know, November 3rd of 2006, well, let me back up a second here and say that February of 2006, I was crippled. Um, um, and what came to a surprise for me was that it was completely due to my drinking. Um, it's a rare condition, um, but I won the lottery, so both hips collapsed. Um, so they put me on crutches and said, you're crippled, and we don't know why. And, um, but I read, you know, Everybody get diagnosed by the doctor, and you look it up on Google and find out, you know, exactly how you're going to die and that kind of thing. So um, what I found was is the second leading cause of this condition was alcoholism. So you would think that that would have stopped me in my tracks and been like, oh, well, I'll stop because that's bad for you and, and that kind of thing. And um, no, I was still seeking meaning. And um, November 3rd, 2006, I was sitting at my normal table, normal bar, normal time, um, and staring at my beer for a good hour, and um, mind racing. I don't know if you've ever been and had one of those panic attacks where you're just trying to solve the problem in your life by thinking at it really, really, really hard. And um, 
That didn't work for me. What came up was you keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. Um, and then I had a little flashback to where I remembered that from. Um, pretty sure I heard it in AA when I was like 18. Um, and then the next voice said, you have a problem, you need to quit drinking. And so um, it was immediate, kind of felt the tug to the back of my shirt. And, you know, after I asked the table um, if they've ever had that moment where they, you know, finally realized the root of all their trouble, you know, you come to the one thing that causes all the trouble in your life, and they kind of kind of shook their head. And I said, well, I'm an alcoholic, and I need to stop drinking. Um, and I did find out you can't say that out loud in a bar. You know, everybody shuts up and stares right at you. And so... Um, you know, it's like saying fire in a movie theater or church even, right? So um, I got up really dramatically. I had crutches, so it was really, you know, heartfelt. There were a lot of tears. And I, um, I had just headed for the door. And, um, and I knew that that was the end of that life, right? I mean, I looked for a couple excuses in the next hour or so before I made it to an AA meeting to, like, is there a way that I could continue this pitiful existence on my own and not have to step outside that. So um, what I look back now and know is that that was God's kind of thumping me on the melon and saying, you know, it's time that you um, kind of stop what you're doing and time for you to find me again. And um, thankfully, he was patient with me. It wasn't immediate, um, really similar to kind of what Bill was saying. I didn't just get sober and all of a sudden find Jesus and everything was okay. That took about another five and a half years of trying to find meaning, right? So I got sober, and I thought life was great and grand, but all I didn't have was uh, a meaning for my life. And so I kept trying to find it in uh, Universalist Unitarian, or I tried to go back to the Episcopal Church, and, and for whatever reason, I found an excuse not to go back to any church. And so, um, lo and behold, my oldest sister invites me to Imago Day, this crazy place that my other sister had bought me a book and said, you should read this, and She's not even the Christian, but I, so I read it, and uh, I bristled every time it mentioned Christ. And, um, but the oldest one invited me here, and so I came. Um, she said I was really agreeable, that I was really happy to come, and, and I don't remember the fight being quite that easy. Uh, I remember thinking about it going, uh, well, Mom's house is really close by, so it's convenient, right? So, um, well, Rick and Gary were up here doing a sermon on Genesis 1 and 2, questions about the Bible. Uh, that was... May 13th, 2012, Mother's Day. And um, I heard, what I heard was, this isn't what really happened, just to let you know, some, sometimes my perception's a little off, but I heard Gary giving the soft sell on Christianity, right? How you can follow Christ and not follow any of the rules, right? You can think really scientifically and, um, you know, kind of think the Bible's a big poem and the whole nine yards. And so, well, I thought that was awesome. So I even cried when Hannah sang at some point during that day and, um, um, and I thought, well, great, I'm going to come back. And so I sent Gary an email thanking him for the soft sell. And he corrected me very clearly and said, <clears throat> no, you, you misunderstand, right? Um, and I'll paraphrase because I don't, I don't have the email in front of me. I still do have it. But um, I felt like it was kind of, a, kind of a punch to the jaw. Is He basically said Jesus doesn't suffer hypocrites in or out, right? Find the meaning or, or don't, but you can't just sit on the fence, right? Can't pick and choose. God's not going to come to you on your, um, kind of on, on your meaning. He's going to come on his. And that's exactly what was happening. My friend Chelsea even said, like a couple weeks later, it's like, it's been crazy to watch God pursue you over the last two years. You know, he drug you to Imago kicking and screaming. And so, um, you know, 
I, what I realized with my email to Gary was, was it, it, wasn't a, it was a reason to find a reason not to come to church. I was looking for an excuse to say, no, no, I was right. You know, this is not good for me. And so um, baptism was coming up, and I thought, well, that would be the next logical step. I was baptized when I was six months old, and I don't really remember it happening. I thought I'd participate in this one here. And so I went to Jeff and asked uh, Jeff Marsh and said, uh, you know, I was baptized when I was six months old. What do you think about me getting baptized again? And he said, um, well, you know, <clears throat> in his real serious voice, if you've ever prayed with him, you know, he's very, uh, he's fantastic. He's just real, um, just conveys the spirit really well. And he just said, if, if you want to get baptized again, that's great. Otherwise, we would recognize you being baptized as six months old, you know. Um, he said, but if you want to make that public, uh, public proclamation, that would be wonderful. And so I thought, Sweet, I'm going to get baptized and life is going to be, well, like the carnival we have out here, right? Um, except for a carnival I don't have to speak at, which would be great. Uh, so I get baptized and I think that life is going to be grand, it's just going to change because everybody that gets baptized or comes to Christ gets a house, a wife, a kid, Volkswagen, actually, not Subaru, but um, so. I did get the Volkswagen. I think I had it already, but uh, nothing else happened the way I thought it was going to happen. And then I got sick, um, kind of mildly so. Looking back on it, is kind of what's been happening lately. Um, that's kind of been the whole story. However, nothing changed. What happened is I got baptized and I started to get changed. And God said to me one day, coming home from church, because Ben was praying with me, and he said he was asking God to heal me, and he said, "Oh, and if." And if you choose not to heal him, would you have him, you know, get an understanding as to why? And I was driving home and I thought, wait, what? No, no. <laughs> Healing would be awesome. Like, I think that's the only choice here, right? You know, um, once again, my story, right? God keeps pulling me back to his, keeps pulling me back to his meaning. And so um, on the way home, that same drive, I thought, if I don't get better, like, if this sinus infection doesn't leave me, if this lung problem doesn't go away, um, if I don't get a better job, you know, um, you name it, family troubles, whatever, whatever thing I thought I wanted, if Christ didn't fulfill those things, is he still my savior? And I had to make, I mean, I had, it was again, trying to find that excuse to back away and find that meaning, and it was a resounding yes, you know. Um, I didn't have anywhere else to go. Like, I knew in my heart that this was the truth and this was my meaning. And so, um, you know, since then, I've jumped in. God's uh, blessed me in other ways through Foster Parents Night Out, Men's Ministry, Refuge, um, my home community, uh, you name it. And so the blessings aren't what I thought they'd look at, look like. You know, the meaning isn't what I thought the meaning would be, um, but it, is, it has changed my life. And so, and we're in the midst of that. Um, I'm still sick. Um, they went looking for stuff in the lungs and found something in the liver, so we're surprised daily, but the thing is, is that, it's, again, it's not my story. It's real easy to fall back in that for me. I do it often, and so, um, you know, just with our pastor's help in the home community, like, I know that he's got a purpose for this, and so um, that's, again, why they asked me to come up here. They said, hey, you lived a life without meaning. Could you come share? So... <laughs> Thanks, Craig. 
I want to read a couple other verses for you come out of Ecclesiastes 3. I've seen the burden that God has laid on men. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the hearts of men, yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning. And so we get this picture that one of the reasons why we can't be satisfied is that God hasn't made us simpletons. This verse says that God has put eternity in our hearts. We long for something more than just whatever is immediate. So we can do things that give us some kind of gratification, but that's why they no longer satiate. Is because we were not designed to go, oh man, that movie was the deal changer for me. I'm going to be a different person the rest of my life, and I don't need to see another movie. I don't need to talk to another person. That movie was it, and it'll carry me on forever. We're not designed that way. We're kind of designed to uh, watch that movie and go, um, there were some kind of cool things in there. Uh, What's next? And the what next just kind of said to the guy who made the movie, that wasn't enough. And, And we say that all the time to God. He, we take a breath and go, that wasn't enough. We meet a friend and go, that wasn't enough. And God is saying, I never intended those to be ends in themselves. They're delivery systems of grace. And I want, I want you and I to have a relationship that carries you through wrecked times and through incredible times. But I want to be what you're getting your read on meaning from, not the stuff or the lack of stuff, or the ruined stuff. I I want to be able to have your life be stuff-free, that it it won't own you. You can be free from it. So um, he goes, I realize that what is good and proper for a man is to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few years of life that God has given him. The picture is there's a way to enjoy life in relationship with God. So I told you I'm on a walk this morning, and um, my wife is uh, up learning a computer program for her work uh, in Seattle. So um, it's just the dog and I, and that's kind of grim in and of itself. And so um, as we're on this walk, I'm looking to the east, and there's this a brilliant ball of fire that's rising up in the sun. And I look to the west, and it's a full moon that's uh, got a complete background of blue behind it. And it's just a beautiful morning of, of contrast between the, the sun and the moon. And I'm going, I need to take a picture of this and send it to Sue. And I, I snapped a picture on my phone uh, first of the moon, and I'm looking at the picture before I send it. And there are all these uh, electrical and phone wires you know, but when I was looking at the moon, I didn't see them. Uh, we have the ability to selectively edit. I had I had kind of uh, photoshopped out of my appreciation of the moon <laughs> all the chords, all the lines, all the distractions. All I saw was this stunning moon, and that's what we're being invited to as our perspective on life. That we don't say I've got to have all of those power chords out of the view, or this is meaningless. He's saying, could you get a selective edit? Could you see those things and be fascinated with me in such a way that you can't necessarily even capture it and take that moment with you to the next moment? So can you have a moment with me and a moment with me and a moment with me and live life 
in the moment. But it's with me rather than this moment's made up of a job and this moment's made up of a wife and this moment's made up of a friend and this moment's made up of, of a great meal. It's can we have the moment in all of those? Can we have the moment in your loss? Can we have the moment in your gain? Can we have the moment in your friendship? Can we have the moment in your aloneness? But can I be the meaning maker in the midst of your moments that feel meaningless? Becomes his invitation. So as he starts to wrap up Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, verse 1 says, Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach, when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. He's saying there's a likelihood that your life is going to get more cynical. And if you wait until you need God, in your own thoughts anyway, to where you think you need God, if you wait till you think you need God, you're already going to be so trapped in your cynicism that you're going to say, I certainly don't need the guy who created what's made me cynical. And he's saying, could you find God while there's still time before your heart and your mind galvanize and there's no flexibility to it, and you've already decided that everything's meaningless, including God, can you, can you find a meaning in your creator? That's the question he leaves us with in chapter 12, verse 1. So then, towards the end of it, in verse 13, he says, Now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. And keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of man. So I came across a um, fascinating dialogue that's been a study. It's still a study, but it's, it's kind of a crazy idea that this guy who's a professor at Iowa State University, his name is Austin Stewart, is, is proposing Okay, he, uh, like I said, he's a professor, and he's doing research, and, and the whole thing that's provoked his research is a caged chicken versus a free-range chicken. And in order to somehow help the caged chicken not feel so meaningless, he's working on the idea of being able to develop a virtual reality headset that, that you'll put on the chicken. And, and inside the cage, on the floor of the cage, is actually kind of like a, a, a treadmill that's like a track pad, so that when you put the virtual reality headset on the chicken and he moves, he gets to move through the free range. And there are other chickens that he's going to see, and there'll be places where there'll be some little grub worms, and he can kind of like assimilate the digging and, and getting the grub worm and the whole thing. You know, and people are going, well, I don't know if a chicken actually can do that, you know? And other people are going, are you kidding me? This is just a crazy thing. We're going to spend way more money on getting everybody a headset than if we just put them on the range and let them be free. Why are we trying to figure out how to keep a caged chicken with a fake out that he's on the range, you know? But, but in a sense, that's exactly 
the world we live in. We live in a virtual reality of here. We think they're all meaning makers. And we're just kind of walking around going, maybe meaning is in this. And we're going, that doesn't seem even real. Or maybe meaning's over here. That was kind of empty and artificial. And we go from thing to thing to thing. And God is saying, I'm the reality. And you're living in a world that could be enjoyed, but it's not the meaning giver of life. And if we flip it, we're living in virtual reality, and of course we're going to come up empty every single time. Because it's not real as far as our soul. God's put eternity in the hearts of men, and we live in a temporal environment. And this transient environment keeps evaporating on a thirst that longs for something that that goes transcendent rather than transient. And God invites us to him as that unchanging person in the midst of seasons, in the midst of things that get antiquated or broken, or people who abandon or disappoint, that we would dial into God in the midst of that. So that's what it looks like to fear God. It's, it's like a practiced presence. And like we've observed hopefully before is that in the book of Job, we're invited to see fear God gives a buoyancy in the midst of suffering. Proverbs is a collection of observations that sees common patterns and says a life of wisdom kind of negotiates or navigates these common patterns. And Ecclesiastes seems to be the sage or the wise person now having to ponder anomalies where there's a rich man who comes to ruin and a poor man who comes to to ruin and a rich man who succeeds and a poor man who lives happy and someone who, who drinks wine and gets owned by it, and someone who drinks wine and celebrates, and someone who is, is wealthy and unhappy, and someone who is wealthy and happy. And, and how come there aren't the observable patterns of the Proverbs that speak with some kind of confidence, where Ecclesiastes seems to speak with some kind of skepticism? But he lands on this same idea that the author of Job, and the author of the Proverbs, and now the author of Ecclesiastes, and just kind of pulling together this underlying current within the wisdom literature of Israel. Fear God. It's the assignment or the task or the whole duty of man. That, that as humans, that's where we would go. So I have a friend that's an artist up in Seattle, and I have one of her um, etchings in my uh, dining room. It's a, she does a lot of sketches of uh, trees, especially uh, just simply, um, you know, like the bark and the limbs, no uh, leaves or whatever. And this one particular uh, sketch that we have that she did, um, it's a, a canvas sketch, and then it's matted, and then it's framed. Okay? And her sketch of this tree is significant right in the middle of the uh, canvas. But then a branch or two go over into the matting and, and right up next to the um, uh, frame. And, and you're drawn to see that it probably goes beyond the frame. And, and that's 
what Ecclesiastes is saying when it says, under the sun, you're not, it's, the, under the sun is not a big enough canvas to contain the sketch called life. Even the frame is not a big enough frame to say this is what life is. The canvas will conclude it's meaningless. The frame will conclude that it wasn't big enough, it's meaningless. And unless we have a connection to an eternal God because we have eternity in our hearts and we practice that presence in the middle of the mundane, it lets us enjoy the repeating cycles. It lets us enjoy the things that fit in a canvas or in a frame. But it's not who we are. And it's not who God is. And it's not where meaning comes from. So the invitation of Ecclesiastes is to embrace life, enjoy life, and get its meaning from its creator rather than from the experiences. So that when an experience gives you a Craig story that says, I still have some consequences of abusing alcohol. Or when it gives you a Sam song that says, you can run And at the end, all you've got is nothing. And be able to come to the idea, it's worthwhile running. It's worthwhile serving. It's worthwhile stepping away from harmful behaviors. But not because meaning will be found. But because they let me express the meaning that I've found in the creator of life. And so today I want to invite you to recalibrate. From finding meaning in all of your pursuits from having and demanding that you must find meaning or else God is bogus to being able to say, God, I realize that I have flipped the script and I'm telling you, I don't find anything meaningful. What's wrong with you? And he's saying, what's wrong with you that you were trying to find meaning in those things? They pass away and we pass away. But there's a person to be known in this life and beyond that gives meaning and continuity forever because that's what's been put in our hearts, eternity. So we're going to take a moment here and I want to invite you to pray. Thanking God for the good things, trusting God in the midst of the turmoil or the stress that you find yourself in, saying, God, I'm not chasing or pursuing you to make things better. I just know that apart from you, I'm stuck with meaninglessness. And I'm going to invite you to the table that after we have um, uh, responded in worship, that we would receive a meaningful grace that says, I care about you profoundly. So let me pray to that end. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you that you've created a world that we can enjoy. And you've also invited us to see a creator that that frames out the meaning, that lets us live in that matted print called our life, but connected to something that's bigger. So, Father, I pray for each person here today that they might know the joy of knowing you and the peace of having things and experiences that only have to last for the moment. So let us embrace this moment in a way that fears you 
and pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you are interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.imagodaycommunity.com.